Exodus chapter 26, please. Open your Bibles, navigate on your device. If you're new or visiting, we're teaching through the book of Exodus. We like to teach through books of the Bible, verse by verse. We're in Exodus 26. We're going to look at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 37. The topic, God describes the veils behind which his glory was manifested. The title of our message, All Veil the King. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this portion of Scripture. Part of this large section, Lord, where you describe the tabernacle in great detail, and then you describe its building in the same great detail. Lord, you were so excited about it, so thrilled about it, Lord, because it is there where you could dwell with man in a new and exciting way, and and you could uh, prefigure, Lord, something even more exciting, and that is the coming of Jesus Christ. I pray this morning we would understand all of that and that we would uh, be mindful of our own privilege, Lord, to be your temple, to have the fellowship that we share with you. And if there's anyone here, Lord, that doesn't know what I'm talking about because they haven't given their life to Jesus Christ, we pray that the Holy Spirit would lead them to salvation, that they would have their sins forgiven and be born again. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Shark Week just celebrated its 30th season. There's just something about watching other people interact with sharks that makes me wonder why I ever went into the ocean. <laughs> they had an episode this year with Shaq, uh, Shaquille O'Neal. They got him into a, they built a special cage. They call it the Shaq cage. And they got him in the water. And it had, because he's big, I guess they, they made certain things bigger. And it had an enormous window area to look out of. And uh, it was pretty exciting. This little three or four foot shark swam into the cage. And it was, uh, I think surfers would say it was gnarly for a few minutes as the photographers and everybody tried to deal with this. But uh, Shaq won that encounter. Jaws pretty much ended my beach days. I didn't need Megalodon to convince me that people are food, not friends. Not only did I swim off the beaches of Southern California before all that, I was a scuba diver. We took diving excursions to the backside of Catalina Island, and I do miss that. It was just absolutely pristine and beautiful. Being underwater for an extended period of time, that's an amazing experience. SCUBA, of course, stands for Self-Contained Underwater Breathing Apparatus. When using SCUBA gear, you're temporarily able to enter a place which would otherwise be impossible to access. So what does that have to do with the Old Testament tabernacle? Well, it's not a perfect illustration, but see if this makes sense. We know from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament that there is a true temple in heaven and that the tabernacle on the earth was a copy of that. Heaven is an environment that is off limits to us in our natural state. Although a few Bible characters have been transported there and live to tell of it, it's clear that heaven's holiness would simply overwhelm us. We need glorified resurrection bodies in order to enjoy the extended stay of eternity in heaven. Desiring to meet with us, God designed the gear we needed in order to access heaven on earth. The tabernacle, consisting of its two chambers, was the one place man could experience the presence of God and not be overwhelmed by his holiness. It was the only place on earth where a man could, in a manner of speaking, breathe the rarefied air of heaven. It was momentary, but it was wonderful. Chapter 26 describes the curtains that comprise the covering enclosing the tabernacle and the veils that served as entry into both of its chambers. 
Those curtains and those veils were precisely described by God to Moses. Their description was intended to communicate God's ultimate intention to restore what was lost through sin in Eden and have face-to-face time with mankind. Keeping all that in mind, I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, the curtains told you that tabernacling among men is God's desire. And number two, the veils told you that tabernacling among men is God's doing. Let's take a look, first of all, at the curtains. Now, they say colors can affect your mood and behavior. There's even a name for it. It's called color psychology. For example, reds and yellows are said to increase your appetite. If you think about fast food restaurants like McDonald's or KFC, they buy into this. They incorporate the colors yellow and red. They deliberately chose that scheme because they want you to be hungry when you're in there uh, and to buy more than you should. Uh, and to just keep eating hamburger after hamburger or chicken leg after chicken leg. You should think about color when you're dieting, therefore. Another researcher claims that white is a color to avoid in your kitchen. Darker colors will not stimulate your appetite as much. And so when you start your next diet, go down to orchard and buy some paint as well. And that has to be part of it. So paint your kitchen some dark, dreary color so you won't want to be in there, or your dining room, as the case may be. Those of you who are on the paleo diet might want to paint your kitchen rock gray and then add cave drawings of yourself taking down a chicken with a spear. (laughs) It'll get you all pumped up to eat raw meat. Take the oven out and just have an open fire. I mean, how you get into this paleo thing, you get deep into it. It's whatever I can catch in my backyard and roast over an open fire. Yeah. As we read about the curtains in the tabernacle, their colors and texture and embroidery, that's going to be our focus. Commentators tend to see seemingly endless types and figures in every minute detail of the tabernacle, and I think they might be right. Uh, But some of them seem to be a little bit of a stretch or they don't agree on all of them. And so I want to concentrate on things that are obvious and actually biblical that can be proven from the Bible. And that means color and texture and embroidery. Now, God's plans for the tabernacle and its service take up more entire chapters in the Bible than any other subject. Obviously, the Bible is about Jesus Christ. And uh, another subject that people miss as a huge subject in the Bible is Israel, the nation of Israel. But in terms of just raw numbers of chapters, God uh, is excited as all can be about this tabernacle. It goes on chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter in the book of Exodus. Then you get into Leviticus, which is all about the worship in that tabernacle. Uh, It was an important step forward. If it was that important in redemption history... We can't afford to skip over it. And so bear with me as I read the first 30 verses together. Or you can get caught up on words with friends, depending on how spiritual you feel this morning. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread. With artistic designs of cherubim, you shall weave them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the width of each curtain, 4 cubits. And every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain on the selvage of one set, and likewise you shall do it on the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set. 
50 loops you shall make in the one curtain and 50 loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is on the end of the second set that the loops may be clasped to one another. And you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that it may be one tabernacle. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair to be a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make 11 curtains. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits and the width of each curtain 4 cubits. The 11 curtains shall all have the same measurements. And you shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And you shall double over the sixth curtain at the forefront of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain of the second set. And you shall make 50 bronze clasps and put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be one. The remnant that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other side of what remains of the length of the curtains of the tent shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle, on this side and on that side, to cover it. You shall also make a covering of ram's skins dyed red for the tent and a covering of badger skins above that. And for the tabernacle, you shall make the boards of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. Two tenons shall be in each board for the binding one to another. Thus you shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle. And you shall make the boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side. You shall make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards, two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there shall be 20 boards. And there, 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. For the far side of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six boards, and you shall also make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. They shall be coupled together at the bottom, they shall be coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus it shall be for both of them, they shall be for the two corners. So there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under each of the boards, and you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle for the far side westward. The middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from end to end. You shall overlay the boards with gold, make their rings of gold as holders for the bars, and overlay the bars with gold. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the mountain. So... That's your assignment this afternoon. Go make them. I can't go to Hobby Lobby, so you'll have to go to Michael's, get a bunch of fabric and put that all together. But anyway, uh, pretty intricate. Here's the deal. The tabernacle, think of it as a movable tent that measured about 15 feet wide, 45 feet long, and 15 feet high. The framework was formed by boards of acacia wood, 20 on either side, 8 at the back, they were held together by five horizontal bars and stood in sockets of silver, which were sunk in the ground. Over this framework, three sets of curtains were hung, which made the ceiling and then drooped over the sides of the boards. The first set of curtains were visible only to the eye of the priests who served inside the tabernacle. They were made of fine linen, white, with cords of blue, purple, and scarlet. Figures of cherubim were woven into them. The second set of curtains were of goat's hair. They were longer and wider than the first set, so they completely covered them, so you couldn't see them from the outside. And the third set of curtains were made from the skins of, it says badgers, but it may have been seals or porpoises or something like a manatee that's called a dugong, and they were lined with ram skin dyed red. 
The entrance to this tabernacle was through a veil. Once inside, you were in the holy place. It was about 15 feet wide, 30 feet long, and 15 feet high. Contained three articles of furniture we've studied previously, the uh, table of showbread, the menorah, and the altar of incense. Another veil separated that room from the innermost chamber, the Holy of Holies. It was a perfect cube around 15 feet in each direction. In that room was the Ark of the Covenant as a chest to hold the Ten Commandments and its lid called the Mercy Seat. God's presence was manifested in that place over the Mercy Seat uh, in the Holy of Holies. Priests had daily duties to perform in the Holy Place The high priest had an annual duty to perform in the Holy of Holies. On the most basic level, the tabernacle was a visible token of God's desire to dwell, or as we're saying, tabernacle, among men. Exodus 25, verse 8, God said this, let them make me a tabernacle that I may dwell among them. And so all of this intricacy and all of its rituals and rites and everything that went on in there, but the bottom line, God says, I want to dwell in the midst of Israel. And so I want a tent. And so here's what would happen. As millions of Israelites pitched their tents in the wilderness, God pitched his tent among them in the very center of them, as a matter of fact. And so uh, it's some of the most important things in the Christian life and the most thrilling things are the most obvious and therefore the things that we tend to yawn at too quickly. We must never begin to bore us that God desires to have fellowship with you, that he made man in his image in order to have a relationship with us. Now, the man he made in his image and the woman he made from the man, they sinned by disobeying God's one simple command. The result was that the incredible face-to-face time that our first parents enjoyed was lost attested to by the fact that they hid from God when he called out to them. You read in Genesis that they walked with God and they had relationship with him face to face in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden, but after they sinned, they hid themselves and God had to call out for them. Even in that, it's such a beautiful thing as God is calling out for them, seeking to draw them out, wanting to come back into fellowship with them, but having a problem in doing so because his holiness had been violated and they had sinned. In that very moment, God preached the first gospel message when he promised he would send the seed of the woman to crush Satan. It's doubtful Adam and Eve understood it entirely, but God was promising in that sentence to come himself as a man, as fully God and fully man, in order to resolve the issue of sin and to restore fellowship with mankind. Now, because the penalty for sin is death... God killed animals to temporarily cover Adam and Eve, and he thereby set in motion the teaching that we see throughout the Scripture that an innocent, sinless substitute is needed to take your place in death on account of sin. And so one thing that you could understand from the tabernacle and from the history, uh, the oral traditions that the Jews knew, was that God was coming as a man to die. Only by dying in our place and thereby paying the penalty for sin could we be restored. Now, the Bible is the progressive revelation of exactly how and when God came. Each chapter got mankind closer to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, and his substitutionary death on the cross to satisfy the penalty for sin and provide for us new life. 
The whole Old Testament is the unfolding drama of redemption, where each step of the way, God is closer and closer and closer to the first coming of Jesus. When Jesus came, the apostle John exclaimed, and I quote, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt is that word tabernacled. A spiritually minded first century Jew would immediately understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of that first gospel preaching and that the tabernacle and later the permanent temple were steps along the way to his coming. And and so we don't think like Jews unless you are a Jew, uh, but as Gentiles we don't. And so when John says that is God tabernacling among us, they would think immediately of this tabernacle where God did what? Tabernacled among us. And now they were being told by John that was happening in a person. It wasn't in a tent. Uh, It wasn't hidden. It was open, and it was in a person who was the fulfillment of that which was prefigured in the tabernacle. And so God, who had tabernacled among them in the tabernacle, was now tabernacling among them as a man in the person of Jesus. Now, I say this with reverence. Although nothing is impossible for God, it isn't easy for His holiness to be satisfied in a way that restores fellowship that was lost through sin. It took all the centuries we read about in Scripture. What do we have? About 7,000 or so years going back, six or 7,000 years of human history going back to the Garden of Eden. People say, well, why isn't God doing something? Why doesn't God act? The truth is God has acted. He, right in the garden, he told you what he was going to do, and, and we see it coming to fulfillment in Jesus, and we understand the future of it in the second coming of Jesus. It seems like a long time to us, six or 7,000 years, but Peter reminds us in his epistle that a 1,000 years is no longer than a day to God and a day no longer than a 1,000 years. In other words, uh, we need to think about time differently. And quite honestly... It takes that long. When you read starting in Genesis to where we are today, this is exactly how long it takes for God to accomplish this amazing purpose of his, which is the redemption of what was lost. Because he refuses to violate the free will of man because free will is necessary for there to be love. God wanted someone to love him. He didn't need someone to love him. He's not pining away for love. He had perfect fellowship, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but he desired a relationship with man, and that had to be a real relationship based on free choice. And so God took a chance, man uh, destroyed that relationship, and God has repaired it, and it's taken just as long as it needs to in order to work out to this point. Now, there in the holy place that we're looking at, redemption history took a giant leap forward. A thoughtful priest could for a few moments each day, in a sense, breathe the rarefied air of heaven. He was in a place that was a copy of what was in heaven, and he was just a few feet away from the manifested presence of God in the Holy of Holies. The priest stood beneath a white linen curtain with its cords of blue, purple, and scarlet. I can't say how much of the symbolism he would have understood, but we, with the complete word of God looking back, can see in substance what he was looking at in symbol. Blue is a color associated with heaven. In Exodus 24.10, looking up, the Israelites got a glimpse of heaven, and they mentioned that it was sapphire in color. I looked it up. It says sapphire is most commonly found in a range of blue shades. And so you don't really need to be convinced that blue is the color of heaven. That seems pretty universal. But it's also borne out in Scripture. Now, in 1 Corinthians, we read that Jesus was the Lord from heaven. We already know that as well. 
But this blue was for the promise in Genesis of the coming seed of the woman who would be God come from heaven to earth. Purple is in the Bible emblematic of royalty. When the Roman soldiers mocked Jesus before his crucifixion, one of the things they did was put on him a purple robe, signifying that he was a king that they would mock. The Lord from heaven would be the king. Then there's scarlet or red. That's the color of blood. Here's an incredible insight from A.W. Pink in his Gleanings in Exodus. He points out that in Psalm 22, verse 6, which prophetically describes the crucifixion of Jesus hundreds of years before it took place, the sufferer there on the cross exclaims at one point, I am a worm. And of course, we take that to mean various things. But the word itself in Strong's Concordance The word worm is a crimson or a scarlet grub that was used for dyeing clothes red. And so the sufferer there is saying that I am the scarlet red, I am the blood that was promised in the garden. Red strongly suggested that the Lord of heaven, the king of earth, would would suffer and die. Woven into the linen ceiling directly over the priest were cherubim. Now we first see these angelic creatures when paradise was lost. Adam and Eve were driven from the presence of God, and the way to the garden of God was guarded by cherubim. Put all of this together, and a thoughtful individual could see that mankind had lost face-to-face time with God. The way to heaven was closed and guarded, but God himself was coming from heaven to suffer and die, and in doing so, he would restore all things and reign as king. Again, I don't know how much each individual priest could know of that because we, we know so much more than they do because of the uh, finished Word of God. But I I think some of this stuff could be uh, nulled out by someone who was aware of the Genesis story. In 2 Corinthians, there were two additional curtains, first of all. The next was goat skin. The goat was associated with sin offerings, especially in the book of Leviticus, and especially on the annual Day of Atonement when two goats would be taken for sacrifice. One was killed and the other was sent out into the wilderness as the scapegoat. We're told that Jesus, who knew no sin, was made sin for us, and so the goatskin represented his substitutionary sacrifice. The outer curtain was, I said, they say in the Scripture, badger, but nobody's really sure at all what that is. I I did some research on it. Some say it's seal. Others say it's uh, flipper. Uh, You remember flipper, right? (coughs) Flipper the dolphin, the weaponized dolphin. Uh, some say it is a kind of a, an animal called the dugong, which is in the manatee family. Others say it's a land animal like an antelope. So no one really knows. The idea, however, is that when you looked at this from the outside, I mean, we've been looking from the inside out, everything's hammered of gold. The menorah is one giant piece of gold. There's all this beautiful linen work and scarlet thread and all of that kind of stuff. But when you saw it from outside, it looked extremely plain and ordinary. There was nothing about it that would catch your attention. That's so like Jesus in his incarnation. The prophets emphasized he was plain, having nothing unusual about him. People wondered how he could do the things he did and say the things he said on account of his humble origins. The Apostle Paul said he made himself of no reputation, never calling attention to himself. The ramskin dyed red might be a nod to the famous episode where Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac. God stopped him and in Isaac's stead provided a ram. The one who made himself of no reputation humbled himself and died on the cross. In his case, the father did sacrifice his only son. He prepared a body for him, a body like ours. 
in order for Jesus to be the once-for-all sacrifice for the sin of the world. Now, regardless how much or how little of the symbolism and shadow the Jews understood, we see it. We're told in 1 Corinthians, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. At the very minimum, the holy place was incredible advancement in mankind having fellowship with God. It brought men into His presence and proclaimed that even closer fellowship was on its way. I mean, when you're talking about the living God, the creator of heaven and earth in His infinite perfect holiness and having a fellowship with him, if, if God says once a year, I'll let the high priest come in with the offering so that we can continue to have a relationship, you and I look at that and think, oh, how sad, but they looked at it and thought, this is amazing. This is incredible. No, they'd never heard of anything like this before, and they knew that it was a stepping stone on the way to something much better and much greater. Now, the veils told you that tabernacling among men is God's doing. The most important thing you're taught when getting certified in scuba, always breathe naturally. In fact, all the other things that you go through for all the weeks of certification, uh, they're just extra things to get you to breathe normally underwater when you have a tendency to hold your breath. You, you, you don't want to do that, especially on your way back to the surface because there's, your lungs are compressed underwater, and if you fill them underwater, and as you rise and hold your breath, your lungs will expand until they expand too much, bringing terrible things to you, like death. And so a lot of divers have to stop, depending on how deep your dive and how long you were down, you might have to stop for decompression. There's even decompression chambers for extremely deep dives. It's likewise possible to die if you entered the Holy of Holies incorrectly, Leviticus 16, verse 2, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the Holy of Holies inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. And so you didn't do pop-ins on God. You didn't say, hey, you know, Lord, I'm out here already tending the incense. Let me just pop in and see how things are going there on top of the mercy seat. God said, no, that's not the way this works. You can come in when I tell you the way I tell you, but in the meantime, I'll kill you if you come in here. Uh, because you has, still have to recognize the holiness. We're, we're not to Jesus yet. I haven't come in the flesh yet. This is as close as you're able to get. It's a wonderful thing, but let's not push it. Only priests could enter the holy place daily to serve, and only the high priest could enter the holy of holies annually to offer sacrifice for the nation. Verse 31, you shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim, You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon the four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall put the table on the north side. Shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be gold, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. So the priest daily entered the holy place through a veil. Annually, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered the holy place through the veil. 
and then into the Holy of Holies through a second veil. And so you go, it's a tent, veil, open it in, holy place, open another vent, holy of holies, another veil rather. Uh, Every little thing about these veils was symbolic, but I want to take a big picture approach to the veils, and especially the veil that only the high priest could go through, the second veil. As wonderful as this fellowship with God was, and it was, veils suggest a barrier. Wouldn't it be great if those veils, those barriers could be removed? I mean, if you're the priest every day, how curious are you? You come in and you've got things to do in the holy place, the showbread to attend to, you've got incense to burn, you've got the menorah, the candle to to make sure it's burning. And, And behind the second veil in that cube room where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat is, is the very presence of God manifest among his people. I mean, are you hoping for, do you kind of, do you like, you know, blow out the candles or the menorah a little bit to maybe get the wind to move the, I mean, do you want to look in there? I'm sure you do, you know, and and I'm sure it it was a, a difficult thing. And so imagine every priest having immediate access to the Holy of Holies at all time. It would be Unbelievable. And then imagine every Israelite being a priest so that everyone had that same access. That's kind of the plan that God had. He says, hey, right now, this is where we're at. Priests come in, high priest once a year, but one of these days you'll be a kingdom of priests to me, and we won't need these barriers. And you know what? Something like that happened in the first century. It happened as Jesus was ending his suffering on the cross. It's an event I've mentioned. I think every week we've talked about the tabernacle. It's that important. Matthew 27, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus had been on the cross for several hours. Physically, he was exhausted, obviously. You wouldn't expect him to yell with a loud voice, but he did, and he yielded up his own spirit. He chose his own moment of death. Jesus was in charge of what was happening on the cross. But here's the amazing thing. It says, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The very instant that Jesus Christ breathed his last, gave up his spirit, the veil over in the temple on that Passover was torn, signifying that there was no more barrier between God and man. Now, there are two things about this tearing that are unmistakable. The first and the most obvious is that it was God's doing he, in a sense, reached down and tore it from top to bottom. When you talk about the temple that replaced the tabernacle, the first temple was built by David's son, King Solomon. It was grand and glorious. That temple was destroyed in uh, the 6th century B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. The Babylonians were ultimately overrun by the Persians. Cyrus allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the walls, and rebuild their temple. That second temple, sometimes it's called Zerubbabel's temple because Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah at that time. It existed for a long time up until the time of Jesus when King Herod, who was not Jewish but was in charge of of Israel, decided to remodel it. Herod was a nut job, serial killer, killed everybody that he could think of, but man, could that guy build And one of the projects was the temple. In fact, when Jesus was alive, the temple wasn't even finished. He was doing so many renovations. But that temple is sometimes known as Herod's temple. It's the one you're familiar with when you look at the models of Israel and you see the temple that's standing there. It's Herod's temple. But it's also still considered the second temple because it's a remodel. 
And it's kind of confusing. So there have been two temples, the first temple, Solomon's, and the second, which was Zerubbabel slash Herod's. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, for one thing, when Herod was rebuilding the temple, he increased the height of it from 20 cubits to 40 cubits, according to the Jewish historian Josephus. That means the veil was somewhere about 60 feet high. It was this huge veil, 60 feet high. We don't really know how thick it was. Sometimes Bible commentators will tell you that it was, you know, three feet thick and horses couldn't tear it apart. The Bible never tells you how thick the veil was. Josephus says it was a hand's breadth, about four fingers. But at any rate, that's not the point. The point is it was torn from top to bottom, from 60 feet off the ground down to the bottom. And man, that must have freaked everybody out. I'm guessing they didn't have a reserve veil. Hey, you know, go get the veil out of the Connex box and let's get this thing going. Did they sew it back up? I don't know what happened, but it was, the, it was one of the most incredible symbolic events in the redemptive history of mankind. And, and you'd have to think, right, like we do. Of course, we're, we have the benefit of the Bible, the completed Bible, but you think Jesus gives up his spirit. Uh, hey, exactly when did that happen on your, you know, sundial? Because at a certain time, the veil was rent in two, and there's got to be a connection between those two, and indeed there was. Its size and its thickness, though, tell us it was done by God. It was His doing. And because of it, we have the closest fellowship with God possible apart from being absent from our bodies and present with Him in heaven. You know that if you die as a Christian, you're absent from the body and present with the Lord. You see Him face to face. If he comes in the rapture, we'll be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, caught up to heaven with the dead in Christ, and we'll all be with the Lord, seeing him face to face. Uh, right now, we have the closest fellowship possible because as a Christian, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's chosen to indwell you, but we still see him through a glass darkly. We don't yet see him face to face. The barrier between God and man was removed forever by his own doing, there's no more need for spiritual decompression in the chambers of the temple. The way to God is open but, uh, and wonderful. Now, the second thing about the tearing of the veil is something that is revealed to us by the inspired writer of the letter to the Hebrews. Therefore, brethren, we have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh." And so the writer there compares Jesus' torn flesh to the torn veil as if they were the same. As the veil was torn, Jesus' flesh was torn for each one of us. We, through his substitutionary death and shed blood, can receive salvation and have this direct access to God spiritually. When it says we have boldness to enter the holiest, it's not talking about approaching God in any earthly temple. God was through with that temple and its religious system. And the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, just as Jesus prophesied. Now, we look forward to and talk in prophecy about a third temple that will exist during the Great Tribulation, and then a millennial temple that will exist during the thousand-year reign of Christ. God's not all that excited about the third temple. He's not waiting for the Jews to build a third temple so he can come and inhabit it. God's not going backwards in redemption. He has a, uh, a relationship with you now through Jesus Christ, and when the Jews restore their sacrifices, it's not an exciting thing. It's a step backwards. In the millennium, 
there will be a temple and all the nations of the earth will come to it, but Jesus will actually be there. He will be ruling and reigning on the throne. What the Ark of the Covenant symbolized in the Old Testament will be fully realized during that time. So keep all of that straight. We are his temple. Individually, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Collectively, we as the church are his temple on earth. We're indwelt by his spirit, the moment of our salvation, and the church is empowered by it as we come together and are living stones, one with another. Now, any moment, we could be in the very presence of the Lord. Through death or the rapture, we would see him face to face. The apostle John says, beloved, now we are children of God. It's not been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. God's promise in Genesis to restore fellowship is almost complete. At any moment, Jesus will return in the clouds to resurrect the dead of the church age and to rapture living believers. That event will be followed by the seven-year great tribulation on the earth. That will be followed by the second coming of Jesus to the earth, which is followed by the 1,000-year kingdom on the earth ruled by Jesus from Jerusalem. That's followed by the great white throne judgment in which all non-believers from all history will be consigned to eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. That is followed by the creation of new heavens and a new earth. And in that time, there is no need of a temple because believers in our glorified resurrection bodies will finally enjoy the face-to-face time fellowship with God that was lost in the Garden of Eden. And the story of redemption will come to its climactic end, its romantic end, its amazing end. Till then, we by faith sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.